We want to welcome everyone to tonight's class on the study of the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter number 19 tonight, and we'll start in verse number 11. Hopefully, we're going to get 11 through 16. We're going to bring us right up to the Battle of Armageddon, but we're not actually going to get into the battle tonight because it just seemed like that was too big of a, a bite to take, and I don't want to I don't want to shortchange that. So we're going to we're going to these things that are leading up to that battle. We're going to talk about tonight because basically these passages are going to launch the the close of human history as we know it. Uh, the Battle of Armageddon, the final climactic war upon Earth. Um, this is the battle that is going to destroy all the ungodly uh, upon the Earth. Um, it'll usher in God's righteousness upon the Earth. Um, and shockingly, Jesus Christ Himself is the one who leads this battle. I say shockingly, maybe it's not shockingly for us because we've heard the stories before and we've talked about it, and we've studied it before, but to the world, this is a Jesus Christ they're not used to seeing. The world has taken the image of Jesus Christ and kind of watered it down so much and, and neutered it so much that it, it's it's such a, almost of a, of a hippie version of Jesus. It's not the true Jesus of the Bible. So when they see Jesus Christ coming back to fight a battle, this is very disturbing imagery for them. It kind of shatters their their what they think about Jesus and their image of Jesus. But this is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ isn't just the one that came to heal and to teach and do those things. He's also the one that brings justice uh, to the world. So we're going to see a lot of that tonight. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. In chapter number 19, verse number 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So the first thing we see is we see this, this person, this, this being coming on a white horse. Now, it's interesting, the, the white horse, the symbolism here isn't what we normally think it is. It's not necessarily a, a symbol of peace. The white horse, in the context of the, the time that this was written and the way John is seeing this, remember, we're, we're getting this all through John's eyes as it's revealed to him. This is what would, would take place in ancient times when, when a Roman general would have defeated a city. So once his, his troops have defeated the city, then the Roman general would walk in declaring that, that this city is now his, and he would do that on a white horse. He would ride a white stallion to celebrate the triumph. So Jesus is coming to the battle on a white horse. It's a symbol of the fact that this battle's already over. Even though in, in the world's mind it hasn't started yet, he's already making his victory lap. He's already coming in on the white horse de declaring victory because this victory was predated, was, was set in stone before the world was even created. This isn't something that we have to wonder and wring our hands in the last minute. We have to pull out like you see on TV so, so often in the movies and everything where the good guy wins at the last minute. This is already settled. And we talk about this a lot at church, how that the, the Satan is a defeated foe. Because even though he may win a battle or seemingly win a battle here or there, understand he's a defeated foe. He's, he is fighting from a position of defeat. When he enters, when he returns to the earth as a conqueror, he does, when he does this, man can depend upon two things. One, it says that Jesus Christ is the faithful and true conqueror. Uh, faithful means that he can be trusted. He can be relied upon to judge every enemy when he comes. There won't be one that's forgotten. There won't be one that's left out. He will conquer and judge and condemn all the ungodly and evil of this world. There will be none that will be overlooked. It also says that he's true. That means as opposed to false. It's simply that, that easy. Um, his conquest and judgment will be true. Everyone who is conquered will 
will be given the punishment exactly as they deserve. No, no evil being, no evil doer has to worry about being unjustly persecuted. They will get the exact persecution that they deserve because his justice is completely true. Every ungodly, every evil person can count upon Jesus Christ being true, and that should scare them to death. That should terrify them because he will met out exactly what they deserve. We see court cases being played out all the time um, in the news and on TV and things. And sometimes we look at it and say, you know what? They got off. They didn't get what they deserve. They may have gotten something, but there was a lot more that they should have gotten. That's not going to happen at this time. This time, everybody is going to get exactly what they deserve. Jesus Christ is going to judge. and He's going to make war upon the earth. And he's going to do that in in righteousness. Um, His righteousness will be their criteria. Uh, We talked a little bit about righteousness today, but in a real short, simple explanation of righteousness is the, it's the right things that we do. Well, our righteousness, as we talked about, is is filthy rags. His righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness is perfect. That's why we put on his righteousness because his is right. His is perfect. Uh, Matthew 16, 27 says, for the son of man shall come in glory of his father with his angels and he shall he shall then reward every man according to his works. Um, any person who doesn't measure up to the righteousness of Jesus Christ left here on this earth will be will be judged. Um, Jeremiah 17, 10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now, if you are in Jesus Christ's righteousness, this should bring great peace to you. But if you're outside the will of Jesus, if you're living on the earth and you're rejecting Jesus Christ, they, these words should terrify you. They should be terrifying because it basically says you're going to get exactly what you deserve. Not not what you think you deserve, but what you actually deserve without any um, special circumstances. There's not going to be any, well, you know, forgive me because my parents were bad parents or, or this happened or that happened. Each person is individually accountable and will be held accountable to Jesus Christ when he gets here. Verse number 12, back in our text in Revelation chapter number 19, says his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. So we see this physical description. It talks about his eyes being like fire and this symbolizes the the penetrating nature of his of his eyes, uh, his, the penetrating the piercingness of his knowledge of everything that goes on. Not only is everybody going to get what they deserve, but he knows because he sees everything. There's nothing that's hidden in the dark places. Um, you know, the world, the evil of the world loves darkness. That's why crime goes up at night, because you know, when we're doing something that we were embarrassed of, or we're doing something wrong, we want to do it in darkness because we don't want people to see it. So we, more houses get broken into at night and people get hurt at night. And these crimes take place because people are, are ashamed of what they're doing. They may not admit that, but they truly are. They're ashamed. They do it in darkness. They do it in secret. And his eyes, he is, he, um, his eyes search out the most inner recesses of our hearts. There's nothing that we can hide from him. There's nothing that's sheltered from him. He is omniscient. He knows everything and he sees everything and he's everywhere. And there's nothing that we can do to hide from him. There's nothing the world can do to hide from him. He has that, that penetrating power. Um, and Jeremiah 23, 24 says, can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him? Say it the Lord, do I do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So it's kind of a rhetorical question. He's asking, he's saying, is there any secret place? Is there any place you can go where I can't see? And of course, the answer is no. 
Um, but he's asking you that question to kind of emphasize that point there. It says that he'll wear many crowns. The crowns that he's going to be wearing. Um, okay, I thought I skipped a verse there from it. It says, and, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. He has many crowns on. The crowns, of course, symbolize his authority. He is the king of kings. He is the one, uh, the, the, the one true ruler of everything. And it's interesting. Normally, a, a king puts on a crown after he's conquered. And again, the battle hasn't been fought yet, and Jesus is already wearing the crowns. Again, it's a symbol of the fact that, that even though the battle, the earthly battle hasn't taken place, that Jesus Christ is already the victor. He is already the king of kings. He doesn't need this victory at Armageddon to be declared that he's already that he's already wearing these crowns. It means he has rule and authority over all these nations, over all these kingdoms he, that he's coming to conquer upon the earth at this time. It says he has a name written um, somewhere. It doesn't say exactly where, but he has a name written that he alone knows what it will be. And I've heard a lot of people try and guess at this and say, well, this is what they think the name is. And this is what they think the name is. But the, the irony of that is, is that if we, any name that we guess, we're basically saying it's not that name because nobody knows what the name is. Um, so it's kind of futile to, to kind of speculate and guess what this name is. If, if it was important um, and if it was necessary for us to know, he would have written it right here for us, but it's not there for us. Um, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every, now, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Throughout history, and even tonight, we're going to see he has many different names. We typically call him Jesus or Jesus Christ, but he has many different names throughout history. But this particular name that's written, nobody knows what this name is, um, except for him. This is for him personally. It's not a... a name to seek attention. It's not a name to seek glory. He has the attention. He has the glory. He doesn't strive for those things. He, he has those things. Verse number 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, interesting about this vesture that's dipped in blood, this could also be translated as sprinkled in blood, and so a lot of people have just assumed that when they when they hear Jesus and they hear blood, they, they assume that this is his redemptive blood, that this is his blood on his garment. But the picture that's taking place here isn't that this isn't what is taking place. This is actually the, the blood of those that, that he has already conquered, um, that blood that, that, that has come upon him because of that. His blood isn't, this isn't his blood, in other words. Um, I used to just assume you read through that fast. You assume when you see the lamb or you see Jesus Christ, you see the blood, you assume it's his blood. But I, I don't believe it is. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Um, but the point is, is that Jesus is going to conquer and defeat all the ungodly and evil of this world. Um, he's going to do it. How is he going to do that? By the word of God. It's interesting that we have that same tool today when we're fighting our battles, that we can use the same word that he is using to, to conquer all the evil of the world. We have that word. I'm, I'm holding it right here in my hand. We have the word of God right here. And we can take that word and we can use that word to fight our battles uh, today. Instead, we rely upon other things. But notice what he uses when he comes. He uses the word of God. 
uh, one of the reasons why I believe that this is not his blood, I believe this is the blood of the those that have opposed him, the, the ungodly of the world, is in Isaiah 63, 3, it says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I, I will stain all my, um, all my remnant, raiment. So I believe that's what it's talking about here, that this is the same blood that it's talking about being sprinkled, and Isaiah is being dipped here on, upon his, his, uh, his clothing. And then, of course, the word of God, uh, we know this verse, hopefully you know this verse very well in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no more powerful weapon that we have at our disposal today than the, um, than the word of God. That is it. There is nothing. If you start looking at the, the armor that, that we're told to put on, we have, we have shields and we have breastplates and we have belts and we have uh, helmets. We have all these defensive things. And, but yet we've got one that is a, um, we, we have one offensive weapon. And that of course is the, um, the word of God. Let's look at verse number 14 of Revelation chapter number nine. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So he's not coming alone. He's a, a leader. He's a warring leader that's coming back. Uh, the armies of heaven will follow him. And the question is, well, who are these armies of heaven? And we find in the scripture who these are, but we also find based upon what they're wearing, who they are. If you notice what they're wearing, they're wearing that fine linen, that that white, that clean linen. This is the, the same clothing that's worn by the believers at the marriage supper of the lamb that we talked about last week um, in, in Revelation 9, 8. It's the same clothing. So this is the same guest that were at the wedding. Who was at the wedding? Remember, we talked about this at this wedding supper. It was everybody, everybody that was um, all the redeemed of all ages, whether it was the Old Testament saints, whether it's the New Testament saints, uh, the angels were there. It's the only time that we see in heaven where everybody is gathered together at one time. All the redeemed are together at one time. Now, these same people, the same description is given, and they are there following Jesus Christ on their, uh, as they come in as his army. In Ma Matthew uh, 25, um, 2531, it says, when the Son of Man shall come in glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of God. So we know that the angels are there as well. It's not just the the, the redeemed of the Old Testament, the New Testament. We know that the angels are there. Uh, Jude 14 and 15, it says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Don't get hung up on that number 10,000, by the way. It's not just 10,000. It's when Enoch had this vision, he just it was a huge number, and he used the, the term 10,000. Uh, you'll see that a lot when, when men have visions, and they're trying to describe them. We see this sometimes with, with John, that it's we can't get caught up too much in the minutia. We have to look and see what it's representing. And when they give a big number like that, what they're usually implying is, it's more than I can count. If, if, uh, you know, if 100,000 people were there or 10,000 people were there, you wouldn't be able to count those people during a vision. So he gives that as 10,000 of his saints. It says to execute judgment upon all and convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed 
and of all their, their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, that was Jude 14 and 15. Back in our text in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 15, it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So a few things I want you to see here. First, he has a weapon. It's a sharp sword that will proceed out of his mouth. Again, this is the word of God. Um, his weapon will be the power of his word. The word of God is the sword of God. Isaiah 11, 4 says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Secondly, it says that he has a, a rod of iron. He's going to smite and rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'll conquer them and subject them uh, and take his, uh, his rightful place as the sovereign Lord of this world. And third, he will execute fierceness and wrath and the wrath of God. We talked about the wrath of God back in chapter number 14, talking about the wine presses. This is a, another picture of that wine presses there. And I want you to kind of remember back to that a little bit. Or if you if you weren't with us, then you can kind of go back and, and look at that. But um, remember, the when we think of wrath, oftentimes we think of it as being an anger where you lose control. But when we talk about the wrath of God, he, he compares it to uh, the stomping of the grapes in the wine press. Well, that's not loss of control. That is complete control. Matter of fact, by having the grapes in the wine press, you're, you're directing that wrath exactly where you want it to go. Also, when you stomp the grapes in the in the wine press, it's a picture of a deliberate act. It wasn't something that he lost his temper and did. This is a deliberate act. God, when God's wrath is poured out, it's poured out deliberately um, upon the, the those that are subjected to it, and it's also poured out thoroughly. Um, when you're stomping on the grapes, you don't have time to say, "Well, we're going to stomp on this grape, but not this grape." No, all the grapes are ungodly. Of course, that that's the picture of that, and they are all going to get stomped. They are all going to be thoroughly to stomp, and they're all going to be deliberately stomped. That's the point of the wine press, and that's the picture that God is trying to portray of His wrath here. This is a controlled act. This is a controlled, deliberate act. This is a controlled, thorough act. None will escape it. It will be complete. And in verse number 16 of our text in Revelation chapter number 19, he said, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sovereign king. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the world. He doesn't need this battle to become that. He is already that when he shows up at the, um, hold on, when he shows up at the battle. He's already the sovereign king. It's already his title. It's already his name. It's already written on him. No one except for him um, can hold that title. He's the only one. He is the conqueror, and he's going to banish all those who have not acknowledged him as such, um, and, and they will be subject to his sovereignty. They will, uh, those that have not worshipped and served him as the greatest king of kings and lord of lords, and first uh, Timothy 6.15, it says, which in, in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only continent, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the only one. He's the only one that can claim that title. 